I'm Dr. Gene Hemsler, and you're listening to Money Talks, Atlanta's longest-running and most respected money show on radio. For more than 25 years, my associates and I have been providing straightforward, no-nonsense advice for your financial questions. Email us at drgene at hemsler.com. That's D-R-G-E-N-E at H-E-N-S-S-L-E-R dot com. This broadcast of Money Talks originally aired Saturday, January 19th, 2019. The only thing we have to fear... The economic health of this nation has been... ...for essential economic freedoms. The excessive decline... Greed. ...in the dollar... It's a late rally on Wall Street... ...too big to fail... ...growing the economy... ...growing the economy... It's amazing what's been going on with the economy. Welcome. Welcome. This is Monito. Monito. Good morning, good morning. You're listening to Money Talks, Atlanta's longest-running, most-respected money show on the radio. I'm Troy Harmon here today with Jacob Keen and the notorious <laughs> Dr. Oh, Roger Tuttero. He's our chief economic advisor at Hensler Financial. He's also the professor of economics. He's a professor of economics at Kennesaw State. And I'm lucky to hold the Hensler Financial Chair. You which definitely I are. Certainly appreciate your company's support of KSU and right. And the you're Cole the director School. of the Economic uh, Econometrics Center. That's right. At Kennesaw State as yeah. well, right? I need I need another hat. There you there, go. There, so. Need another head if you're going to wear so many hats. <laughs> All right. So uh, market this week has uh, treated us uh, halfway decent, right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Maybe. One point three. Seven percent. Yeah. Not bad. Not bad. We'll take it. Had some. It's early. It's early in the earnings season. Yeah. We've had some banks report. It's been a little mixed, but the the market response has been pretty solid. I yeah. Mean, overall, really financials up four and a half on the week. Yeah. Big two. Big news there. Yeah. It, <clears throat> it's pacing. It's pacing a little bit below the estimates, but it, at least it, with the. Um, Financials, uh, we got some decently solid earnings growth that we're looking at right now, 16%. Yeah, it's not um, bad. Rates up, rates up helps in general. Yeah. Well, it helps unless you're a utility company, which is our big loser on the week, down about 1%. Right. And uh, you know we've got pretty big moves across the board on the interest rates uh, relative to normal, 15 basis points higher on the two-year, 22 on the five. 28 basis points higher on the 10-year, and then 30, uh, or uh, 52 rather on the on the 30-year. That's a pretty good move for a 30-year bond, yeah. you know, half a percent. And I mean, the good news there is for those out there that were obsessed with whether or not the yield curve was headed toward an inversion, and whether that would foretell of a recession coming. Uh, this quickly clearly was a week in which we got some steepening on the curve. Yeah, I know it, uh, it definitely for a guy that watches the markets and and. Uh, uh, yields and, and um, earnings and all the rest of that stuff, like me. Um, I've been talking for a couple of weeks now about how the one year has been higher than the two, three, four, five year on the Treasury. You go back in history and look at any time we've had a yield curve that looked like that. Right. It was June of 2006. Right. Which, you know, it, it was kind of a topping of the market for home builders, mm -hmm. but uh, definitely the market did not top until. October 9th of 07. So uh, still, you know, market was, direction was still positive. Right. I think that's one of the points is that when we talk about this yield curve inversion, which occurs anytime 
short-term interest rates get higher than long-term interest rates, then, you know, one of the concerns is that can be a predator of recessions or a downturn in the equity market. Right. But I think people need to remember there's a pretty long lag there. And the, no the, those inversions can run anywhere from 12 to 18 months easily before the economy responds. Yeah. And, and this is not the hard signal we usually look for. It's the 2 and the 10. Right. And that didn't happen. Yeah, they'll look at the 210 spread is probably the most commonly monitored. Some people look at the Fed funds rate versus the 10. But I always caution folks, this is a little different because we are, we are now a decade into the quantitative easing uh, that started in 2009. And so I'm not sure that long-term rates truly reflect all the market forces. Yeah, There's and now still some we've, manipulation. Now we're kind of rolling that off. I know October of 17, we are, is that right? Yeah, yeah October of 17 is when it started. We're full-blown now. What is it? Tim? Yeah, about, about $50 billion a month. About right. two-thirds of that treasury is one-third mortgage-backed securities. Yeah. We're allowed to mature and roll off. Yeah, and it's it's not going, I mean, you can't just use that math and get to where we are with the uh, with the Treasury's balance sheet, we're still around $4 trillion. Started at, what, 4.3? Right. So Basically quadruple the size of their balance sheet between um, the first round of quantitative easing in 2009 and the third round, of course, was 2012. Right. So, so quantitative tightening, so the long end of the curve, you would expect to go higher under conditions like that. you got a, a big buyer that's no longer buying but actually letting maturities occur. Right. And I think that's certainly there is some of that upward pressure on the long rates, but offsetting that, uh, Europe still has very very low long-term interest rates and capital right. flows globally. Just stop their quantitative easing, right? What right, that's right. Year? So they're they're certainly well behind us in that regard. Yeah. And then of course, you know, there is no significant uh, evidence of inflation. We're running 1.9 over the last 12 months on CPI and about 2.2 if you take out food and energy. So we are at that 2% sweet spot for inflation. That the funny part is some people are saying, oh, 2% inflation, this is, should we be worried? Uh, no, folks, this is what we've been trying to get through uh, really for much of the last decade. That's what the driver was behind the quantitative easing. Yeah, Jacob, I know you and I talk a lot about uh, other people's forecasts, and one of the big news uh, stories that we've been seeing is how many folks are saying, how many stock analysts are saying that uh, they expect um, uh, non-domestic issues to actually outperform in 2019. But if you listen to what we just talked about, we got a, a country that's dealing with the Brexit potential this year. Um, well, a group of countries, the European Union, uh, and, and they really don't have that many tools to fight if we did start seeing economic slowing in Europe. Does, does that give you any pause for concern, Dr. Tatarou? Well, I think there is some um, concern that we have some global slowing. And even if we don't have a formal recession in the U.S., the slowing of the global economy obviously has adverse effects for U.S. exports. Uh, of course, the value of the dollar plays into a lot of this as well. And when you talk about foreign markets and their performance, thing to remember about investing in foreign markets is if you earn the profits there, you've got to bring them back to the U.S., what we like to call um, I guess that's um, translational exposure, I guess, right, or, or operating. I'm trying to think which way, which way it goes. I'm, I'm talking national yeah, finance in a, couple, in a couple of weeks. So, uh, yeah, so you know, if, if the dollar were to strengthen too much, then foreign earned profits can actually lose some of their value on the conversion. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think I don't, I don't expect the dollar to strengthen too much from you. I think what's most interesting is if, kind of tying it all together. You, you, you go back to October, that's when we hit cruise control on the QT, sure. right? At the same time, we're in an environment right now where if you, yeah, rates are, rates are low elsewhere, but if, you look, if you're looking to hedge your FX exposure and you want to own U.S. dollar rates, 
the yields the yields on U.S. Uh, treasuries are actually lower in in hedging that exposure. So you've got a lot of uh, I mean, you look at just from that perspective, you would expect rates to have continued to move higher, and they've come off a bit. So what's happening there? For me, I say, I, I see the engine of the global economy for basically the past decade. I mean, most of global GDP growth has been coming from China, and we've seen some slowing there. In fact, I was just reading uh, what a week or two ago. For the first time in two decades, Chinese car sales were down year over year. So I, I think that's the story, and, and I think that's some of what's playing into uh, a lot of these other foreign developed markets is they're, they're strong trade partners with China as well. Right. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. the, uh, the analysts that I mentioned earlier are saying that uh, the basis for their call is the valuations being lower outside the United States, but in reality there might be a cause for that. Right. Um, but, it, but it does seem to be quite a popular well, trade it's, at it's, the moment. What's what's also interesting to me is you think of kind of like where we where we are in our cycle, you know, from from a monetary perspective compared to them. It's like are they going to have time to catch up? Because basically what you're saying, Troy, is they don't have a lot of room to be accommodative. They don't have the same amount of room to be accommodative that right. the the U.S. Fed does. Sure. Is the global economy going to be able to continue to grow for long enough for them to get up off the mat? Because you look at Europe in particular. They had the they had the debt crisis in 2011, so they were even slower to right. kind of turn around. Yeah, I, the one thing that I do recall is a few years ago when Janet Yellen gave us our one of our first uh, interest rate increases. I was sitting there scratching my head. The fundamentals didn't really seem to play out a case to be raising rates. But one of the things that she said, and I could absolutely agree with at the time, was she was trying to retool. It was time to retool. And I think really our last, the December raise was another one of those. When you look at inflation numbers, it really didn't support a, a higher rate. Yeah, I'm going to give you an opposite argument, though. I'm not a huge fan of the, of the we need to reload the gun, if you will, or get sure. the, prior, the powder dry. I think it's an appropriate reason to raise rates is that we are, by historical standards, in a very, very low rate environment. Right. I mean, the Fed funds rate, if it's 225 to 250 now, you got 2% inflation. That's barely a positive real Fed funds rate. And I don't know how in an economy that grew 3% in 2018 we can say that's normal. So I think it's not as much about tightening, raising rates to fight inflation as it is moving rates back to a more normal environment. Right. Because at the end of the day, that's what I want. I want I want interest rates that somewhat mimic what would happen in a purely private market. Well, you know, a few minutes ago I referenced um, the the shape of the yield curve looking almost precisely like it did in June of 2006. I looked at that, and the way that I got to that was looking at the tables. So, that, you know, you run down the three-month, the six-month, all the rest of the, the maturities. You add 2.4% almost across the board, which speaks exactly to what you're saying. 2.4% lower this time toward what feels like could be top of market um, versus, you know, 2006, our last cycle mm-hmm. high for economic data at least. All right, well, let's take a real quick break. When we come back, we will do the dog of the week and get into some really interesting economic and financial discussions. Stick around and listen to Money Talks. It's time for the dog of the week. 
right, so this week on the Dog of the Week, um, as you guys know, if you've been listening to me very long, it's usually uh, just really a platform for me to talk about something that seems really interesting, maybe even a little more interesting, maybe, I said, than finance and economics. But this no week, yeah, I know, it's uh, it's kind of a stretch. we got a news off the Internet from CBS News talking about a couple in Kentucky, uh, Actually, they're not quite a couple yet, but a lady named Laura from Mississippi went up to meet her uh, uh, fiancé, Cody Lutz, in in Kentucky. They had a real big snowfall while she was there. She wanted to build a snowman, so she did. No, we don't have the... Kelly Lynn, we don't have the music. Do I want to... Do you want to build a snowman? But we've played that on here before. Um, Anyway, so they build this huge snowman, 10 feet tall, uh, put a huge top hat on it that they made out of a box. Life's good. Well, they go to bed. Um, I guess it got some attention in the neighborhood. A vandal came by and decided, you know what, that snowman is rife for the picking. We're going to run over it with our truck. Mm-hmm. So they wake up and they find tire marks through the snow that run up to the bottom of the snowman and stop what nobody saw was they built the snowman around a big oak stump <laughs> and the truck slams into the snowman leaving an indention of his bumper on the tree and the snowman and everything related so well, you uh, one of those awesome stories i think uh, is, that, is that true it was a mississippi woman and a kentucky man yeah. Wasn't that a Conway Twitty Lorraine yeah, Lynn song? Lorraine Lynn song, I think it was. Louisiana man. Oh, sorry. Louisiana okay. yeah, man. A little off of my yeah. country uh, trivia. Yeah, well, I helped you. Thank you. So, uh, <laughs> I guess whose neck is the reddest? I win today. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, so before our break, we were talking about some economic news. Uh, got into the rate discussion, and uh, Jacob, you wanted to make a few points before we leave that, and we got lots of other things to talk about in regard to economics and government and that sort of thing. So where were we? Well, um, I mean, we were kind of going back and forth talking about... Um, Fed policy. I, yeah, I mean, every, every it, you look at it, you you kind of look at it in a, in a vacuum or, you know, given current conditions, and you're like, yeah, rates should be much higher from, from here. But I think one of the issues that we have right now is there's so much leverage in the system that, that at a certain point it starts to start it starts to uh, uh, reverse you, you start to force the deleveraging in the corporate sector that then how how do you feel about that Roger I well, mean I, I'm looking at I'm I'm looking at some of these these corporate uh, corporate credit levels you know right. the debt issuance that we've seen throughout this cycle I mean we're getting to levels that we haven't been before do you think do you think that I mean, the Fed's talking about what's what's our star at now, two, eight, something like that. Yeah, I, I guess I, I have a couple of comments on the credits. I mean, first off, we talk about the yield curve. I also like to look at the spread between corporate bond yields and treasuries, essentially a proxy for how much default risk yep. the market sees out there. And it really hasn't widened hardly at all between AAAs and corporate and treasuries, and only a tiny amount between BAAs and treasuries. So, so far, at least the bond market doesn't appear to be that worried about negotiable securities. Uh, most of the bankers are very aware of the fact 
that when you start raising interest rates, the ability of companies to service their debt can become impaired. And they have typically, as part of their asset liability management, they stress test their loan portfolios for 100, 300 basis point moves in the level of rates, and including steepening and flattening the yield curve. I guess where the concern out there is now is over the levered loan market, you know, which tends to be credits exi- uh, or uh, credit ex- extended to companies that are already carrying a lot of debt, and typically these are loans that are very uh, attractively priced for the lender. And so there's where I think the concern is over over potential increases in defaults. Yeah, I was going to say, when you get down closer to the speculative grades, we have seen a bit more of a spread widening. Right. Um, But if you think about what's gone on in the last few years, really back to your point about having such low interest rates, um, it's the CFO's job generally to get the corporation to the lowest uh, weighted average cost of capital. And and we know that equity costs are significantly higher than debt costs. Mm. And when you have debt costs that look even lower by comparison, you know, from, from years gone by, uh, it's not surprising to see that companies are borrowing money, sure. buying back their shares, which this has been a huge trend. Well, it's gotten, it, it, we've talked about it here in the last few weeks, where it's gotten to the point where you look at uh, price to earnings and, uh, and measure the market by that relative to its historicals. And it looks pretty attractive at the moment relative to what we've seen over the last 10 years. Yeah, typically when you see companies buying back their stock, it's either one of three arguments. One is, as you're saying, they're changing their capital structure, they're borrowing money and paying off equity to lever up in general. Uh, One is that they look at their stock, they look at how they believe they will generate earnings going forward, and they believe their stock is undervalued versus what it, they will be able to generate sure. in terms of cash. And and then, of course, you know the other opportunity is that if they look around and they don't see a lot of other real investment opportunities in the economy, right. buying back their own stock essentially generates um, an, an implied return for the shareholders. Right. So And you're right to say implied because what we look at, if you look at price to book right now, uh, or price to EBITDA rather, right. um, it looks still uh, significantly higher than, than we've seen it in a long time. It's about somewhere between 26 and 27% above its long-term average. Right. When you look at uh, price to sales, which again is not going to be impacted by any of those moves in financing, mm-hmm. it looks 26 to 27% higher than its long-term average. So uh, it's hard to say. I really do blame it on a low interest rate environment, uh, which makes me not fault the, the corporate actors for doing what they've done. But right. at the same time, as an analyst, I look at things outside just the price-to-earnings ratio, and it gives me a little bit of a cause for fear, you know, that, that uh, you know, we, we still, I, th- I think that there's a lot of investors out there that are, that are really more focused on the price-to-earnings ratio and not so much the cause behind what has gotten us back to that uh, level that's relatively near. It's still a little bit higher than the right. long-term average, which is 1655 on a price-to-earnings ratio, we're around 18. Right. Um, so, you know, you can tell there's a bit of a premium, but it's still, you know, a little bit unsettling when I look deeper. And right. I, 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 think, I think that's definitely a symptom. I, I think you've kind of got these, these two things at play. One of the things that, that I've seen, and I'd be interested to hear your take on this, Roger, is if you, if you overlay population growth with the rates, the correlation is, is very, very strong. And we're getting to a period where we're having lower population growth, so you would expect lower rates. But I think 
I think when 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 you when you think when you think like a a finance guy, I mean you're thinking hurdle rates, right? If you slam the hurdle rate low enough, then you're 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 crowding the capital markets with this easy money, and it doesn't give the opportunity for other actors that that have potentially better growth opportunities to to raise that capital that are riskier. It doesn't take people. It, it, it doesn't give those projects the same financing because everyone's able to make this easy return on capital because the cost of capital is so low. Yeah, I, you know, I've talked to, to bankers for quite a few years now, and I still, I, I've been waiting on this for the last three or four years, but I haven't seen huge, um, at least they haven't seen, or at least the ones that I talk to, uh, haven't seen huge demand for, for uh, borrowing. I guess people right. are going more to the public markets. Uh, at least the big publicly traded corporations, but bank lending still seems to be somewhat muted. Yeah, most bankers would tell you the loan demand is not where they would have expected for being this far into an expansion. Uh, I will tell you that you know community banks historically have ex- extended a lot of credit to home builders, for example, and uh, that a lot of a lot of the builders and developers I talked to are still using private private money sources. And by that, I mean the hard money lenders and private right. equity funds sure. as opposed to traditional bank lenders. A lot of private equity funds. I've heard right. that too, yeah. uh, which which kind of leaves us sitting here wondering, I mean, if, if low rates are supposed to make that happen, well, I guess just the, the alternative players have been what have soaked up the demand uh, for the lending and the, the banks are sitting there scratching their heads. Yeah, but in defense of the banks, though, I mean, most banks would tell you that the last couple of years have been pretty good. They're finally seeing net interest margins widen somewhat. They're finally getting their return on equities, uh, not back where they were before the Great Recession because they're carrying more capital. And as you know, if you carry more capital, you're slightly less levered than the same return on assets would support a lower ROE. That's a uh, regulatory requirement, too, That's right, right the, the so-called Basel III rule. Yeah. Uh, and even if you don't directly apply the, the, the letter of the rule, it certainly culturally affected the amount of capital banks carry. Yeah. Well, uh, when we get back, let's talk a little bit about uh, government shutdown and the trade war with China, which are both also impacting the economy. Uh, stick around. You're listening to Money Talks. We'll be right back. When you start investing in stocks, you seek investment advice. When you seek investment advice, you go to the Internet. When you go to the Internet, you start believing all the wacky correlations spouted by armchair analysts. When you start believing those wacky correlations, you start buying and selling stocks based on butter production in Bangladesh. When you start buying and selling stocks based on butter production in Bangladesh, you offend your lactose intolerant girlfriend, who in turn moves out. When your girlfriend moves out, you can't afford rent on your own because all your money is tied up in the stock market. When you can't afford rent on your own, you become homeless and alone. Thank you. Don't become homeless and alone. Get rid of financial advice from armchair analysts and upgrade to Money Talks. This is Money Talks. We're back. You're listening to Money Talks. I'm Troy Harmon here with Jacob Keene and Dr. Roger Tuttero. We've been talking for a while now about some uh, interest rates and the Fed monetary policy. If you have questions that you would like for us to answer on the air, uh, whether it be about rates 
uh, your financial situation, uh, the economy, our thought on the stock market, you can always give us a call. one 429 916 is the number to our question hotline. You call in, get a recording, you leave your message, including your question. Uh, we play the question on the air and answer right behind it. So that's one 429 9166 If you prefer to talk to a human being, you can call 770-429-9166 and ask uh, to be connected to our uh, radio producer, Miss Kelly Lynn Salise. Uh, Or you can email us at drgene at hensler.com if you just don't care to talk to us at all. Uh, D-R-G-E-N-E at hensler, H-E-N-S-S-L-E-R.com. Uh, you can also go to our website, Hensler.com, and uh, answer quite a few questions on your own uh, if they are of broad enough topic. So uh, plenty of ways to contact us. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, but in the meantime, let's talk a little bit about government shutdown. Seems like there's no end in sight to this. Uh, we've uh, circled the wagons, but then we've got some uh, factions that are trying to, to uh, get parties riled up at the leaders and and uh, one go one direction one another uh but really there's been very little or no um real bickering movement it's 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 really just fighting right it's just He's, i'm not giving you the money and yeah never confuse can, policy like and politics they're very different right and this right, is pure right. politics um you know here's what i would say i mean this week it came out that the, the uh, white house analyst had slightly increased what they estimate as being the cost for economic growth from the shutdown. But I guess I would, um, I I think the bigger potential uh, issue out there is whether it further undermines confidence Main Street America has in Washington. And we just got the University of Michigan consumer sentiment numbers for the month of December, and they were pretty good. Uh, We've held most of the uh, post-November 16 surge in consumer confidence still remains in place. The problem is, you know, we'll start getting the preliminary reads on the January sentiment pretty quickly here. Right. And at that point, we'll be going from a, a couple-day shutdown to one that is clearly now, at least by the book, you know, the longest. Um, so we'll see. I mean, but another good example is that the, the, the amount of media coverage of the shutdown certainly doesn't help. Right. Um, when, when if you're Delta Airlines, you don't need additional stories about how long the wait is, even for the TSA-approved people. Because I think if you're a rational person and you're flying three or somewhere that you can drive in five or six hours, you're probably not going to fly if you think you have a two-hour wait to clear security. Yeah, just as well hop in the car and go yourself. I, one of the things that uh, you know that you you pointed at the 0.1 percent every two weeks has been shortened now to 0.1 percent of GDP every week. Um, you know you're slowing down, and then you made comment on uh, consumer sentiment. I think a lot of what's going on with consumer sentiment in December, we saw uh, where personal income was uh, up like 3.1 percent, mm-hmm. and you got inflation at 2.1. The consumer feels a bit wealthier. Right. The prices aren't rising as fast as their income. So, uh, what's funny to me, I guess it's not funny. It's understandable at this point. Uh, the you've got the what is it? Current situation versus the expectations. Right. Uh, is part of that. Uh, sentiment and the current expe- or the current situation has always been better at least lately 
than what we expect down the pike. So Yeah, there's five questions that drive the Michigan Sentiment Index. Two of them are related to current conditions, things right. like are you better off or worse off than a year ago, good or bad buying times, and three of them are forward-looking. Uh, the forward-looking ones are actually the component or subcomponent of the Michigan Sentiment Index that is one of the ten leading economic indicators, uh, with the argument being expectations about the economy will drive actual behavior. But the interesting part to me is that the given all the volatility we had in the equity markets right. uh, in November and December, that we did still see the, the confidence numbers come in pretty good because I think there was a lot of expectation that the volatility in the stock market would cause consumers to be depressed, and evidently that's not the case. Yeah, I wonder how many of them are invested at this point. Right. Well, that's a good point, too. It makes you wonder, right? Right. Which, which also, you know, I don't, want to, I don't want to pull us off topic too much, but one of the things I know that, you know, that from the beginning the Hensler's been good about is making arguments for people to get in and invest for the long term, sure. how hard it is to talk to talk time the markets. And once again, this is an example. Had you sold out after several weeks of volatility with a downward drift and not gotten right back in, you would have missed some of the recovery. Yeah, pretty and that, significant recovery. Yeah, and that's 10%. always the problem. I mean, and we we talked about this in 2008 when the market corrected, is the folks that got out, they got out toward the bottom, and they didn't get back in, and they missed a lot of the recovery. Yeah, that's uh, that's not off topic at all. If you ask me, uh, we're talking about uh, really we what we encourage is the 10-year rule. That's a, mm-hmm. a longer, it's, it's basically a longer-term um, investment approach, at least for your equities. Any money that's not needed within the next 10 years should be in equities. If you've got a financial plan and you know your consumption needs out of your savings, uh, we recommend you put it in the bond market where it uh, can be a little volatile, but volatility in the bond market relative to volatility in the equities market is hardly uh, measurably rel- measurable relative to the, the other. So uh, very low volatility, your money's generally... Uh, going to be uh, safe there. And again, you know, that's what we talk about a lot. Well, let's uh, turn the page a little bit then and talk about the trade war with China. There's been quite a bit of news uh, surrounding that. I think I've seen some uh, estimates that uh, there are folks that are kind of expecting that our our uh, economic summit in Davos, mm-hmm. the Swiss uh, meeting that we have, is it in January, February? It's Coming up in the next few weeks, um, there are those that believe that that's going to be the backdrop for the announcement that, hey, we got things worked out and all's well. Have you heard any of that? Well, you know, we'll see. I mean, it's if, if I've learned one thing about President Trump, it's that he's not always very predictable, and uh, <laughs> and that may that may actually be that may be part of his uh, part of his strategy. I think, you know, t- on Thursday, of course, this week, we did get some, at least a rumor, that you were going to see some of the tariffs reduced uh, in an effort to perhaps move everybody toward getting a broader trade deal. Uh, we'll see what comes out of all that. Uh, but I do think that um, what what President Trump is trying to do is use tariffs as the stick to get a trade deals that he thinks are fair to American businesses. And, you know, I am a pretty adamant free market guy and a pretty adamant free trader. But, you know, we want fair trade as well. Right. And, um, you know, I've been t- been sharing with people, I'm putting on my economic theorist hat, we have an idea called the theory of the second best in microeconomics, which says if you have multiple sources of distortion in a system, that removing one source doesn't necessarily make you better off. And so I think you can make the case that if you already have other trade distortions, sometimes maybe putting tariffs in there and changing the negotiations that way, you know, may not necessarily be a bad bad strategy. Yeah. And And – from what I've seen is there's uh, there's two two main um, 
advisors to the to the president on this. You've got Lighthizer and you got Nuchin, and it seems to me that the Nuchin camp he's he's trying to he's trying to push for rolling back these tariffs, showing some concessions, and and maybe that'll bring China to the table. And Lighthizer he's coming off where he was, it seems like, but it's it seemed to me from what I was reading initially that he wanted to get. China to China to make these reforms and then show that they're going to put those in place because his argument was we've done deals with China before. They say they're going to do something. They don't do it. Keep the tariffs on until after they show they're going to do it. It seems like he's coming off that a, a bit. So it seems like the consensus as far as the policy is getting closer. I don't know what where they're going to arrive upon, but I mean, there's they're they're moving towards. I think I, don't don't they also have a, uh, an official meeting with uh, the uh, Chinese? Uh, yeah, the um, vice premier Li, Liu He isn't that March first. Uh, they were saying within the later this month, but uh, I'm, I'm saying exclusive meet. It's just U.S. and China. Oh well, it very well might be. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, well, here's the thing, and that's it, where the extension runs. Through, it does right? seem like there is some some talks. We're we're right. not just a stalemate. And there's, I think there's discussion. I, I think one of the advantages that that the U.S. has in in these discussions is the U.S. economy is doing better than the Chinese economy. It is right. Yeah, you're right. not seeing the slowing. And, sure. and of course, when we talk about these trade deals, remember it's not just about um, you know tariffs. I mean, respect for intellectual property. That's and, major. And the rule of law is a big part of the difference. Yeah. And you can't and and, and at the level playing field in terms of having uh, joint ventures. And so I think we need to say. China, if you want to be part of the, and they of course are a dominant player in, in the global economy. But if you want, if you want to play with, we need to play fair, and we need to respect right. intellectual property. Yeah, well, not only that, they're talking about opening up their financial markets as well, which right. uh, definitely, if you're going to be looked at as a as a major national player, you would expect uh, that some of that's going to have to change. You're listening to Money Talks. We'll be right back. Money talks. If uh, you would like to get in touch with us to have your financial question answered, you can always call us on our question hotline, 1 855 429 9166, or you can call us on our regular line, 770 429 9166, or email us, Dr. Gene at com. D R G E N E at H E N S S L E R or go to our website, and you can probably find an answer to your question. Uh, as long as it's broad enough, um, we have lots to see there, uh, lots of good information. So uh, when we left, we pretty much left behind government shutdown, Fed monetary policy, and trade war with China talks. Uh, we've got a few questions that we'd like to answer. Carlos from Forest Park asks... Uh, Let's see his question. Okay, this is a bit hypothetical, but with Roger on, I'd like to put this out there. Uh, 
Rogers or something we need to know. Uh, I don't know how that ties to me in any way, shape, or form, I promise. Cannabis stocks nah. are all the rage every week, it seems. Maybe since you're around a lot of college kids, I, who knows what to tie. <laughs> I don't know. Every it. week, it seems there's new headline for Tilray, Canopy Growth, GW Pharmaceuticals et al. Uh, the use of cannabis and CBD oils could be big business. Uh, there are, there's been speculation that big tobacco companies and pharma companies will eventually get in on the trend. So at what point do the companies begin to lobby for changing the U.S. laws? And uh, if they can do that, what bump does that have on an economy? I'm not so sure that it does. But right. uh, when was the last time we saw something illegal become legalized and already have companies and stocks in place? Well, I can tell you probably the easiest one is 1933 when we saw the reversal of prohibition of alcohol right. is probably the answer to that final question. So some of the companies that had been making alcohol for a long time uh, actually stopped, but they many of them just changed. I don't know if you know it, the, uh, Pabst, right. the maker of Blue Ribbon Beer, actually was caught up in the middle of that. They switched to cheese, Made a, had a huge cheese factory. We were a fountain of knowledge they today. Were, they were from Wisconsin. Oh, that's right. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so they had a company heads. called Paps Etz, and uh, they, it was just about cheese. They were making cheese. And uh, well. they wound up selling off, to, I think, to Kraft a few years later. Hmm. Uh, many of the companies, like Yingling, that was in business then, I don't know right. if you knew right. that, yeah. they made ice cream, switched to an ice cream factory. Some of the companies made uh, near beer, just low-alcohol beer that was still legal, um, but uh, everybody had a, I mean, Anheuser-Busch did something similar, but hmm. they even, uh, Coors started a tech company making ceramics that actually is still a part of their business today. So, you know, those companies that were there and then got regulated out of business when they came back in, yeah, that was kind of what was going on. And we have it here today. Hmm. We've got states that have legalized yeah, I think that's part of the problem. I mean, or what the complicating issues? There's federal right. law, there's state law, there's banking law. Uh, I have friends who live in Colorado, live in California, and of course they tell me all the dispensaries have popped up everywhere. Uh, I was in Seattle about five years ago, did not know they had legalized it. I walked out of the Sheraton and and I thought I was back at the Peter Frampton concert, in 1977, yeah. in the Omni. Uh, but I, but I do think that. But you had your shirt on this time. Uh, <laughs> I always had my shirt on. No. Um, but I think the issue is, as we say, until you get all the st all the federal law changed as well, there's still going to be some issues with that. And then, how do you run a company where you're having trouble uh, getting access to basic banking services? So I think they've got a long way to go in the regulatory environment for, before the cannabis. Um, play becomes um, less risky, if you will. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. And, well, and I kind of looked into that, guys. And uh, if, you, if you use California as, let's say, a case study, and that they had medical approval um, basically 10 years before they had recreational approval, and you start to look at these states that have uh, medical approvals now, and you forecast forward, okay, 10 years from now, you start to see kind of how the chips fall as far as, you know, the, the political battle that we have here. It starts to feel like it's could be it could be a possibility going into, you know, 2026, 2030, somewhere around that area, just at the pace that we're starting to get across the electoral map now. So yeah. it's just something to keep in mind. But one thing I wanted to get back to, Troy, is you, you had all these unique cases of 
manufacturers sw- sure. switching their manufacturing into really random things. Well, if you think about the uh, the uh, cannabis industry and its kind of nation stage right now, once you get to that federal legalization, well, let's look at Canada, for instance. They have it's, it's fully legal in Canada. They're having supply shortages out to 18 months. They can't supply the stuff. They don't have the infrastructure and the capital in place to be able to get get this cannabis to the shops. Well, who could serve that in the United States? And then it, the most natural assumption there is, well, the tobacco companies. Right. Because <laughs> they're already rolling hundreds of millions of cigarettes. Right. And, and if they can find some uh, relationships with the farmers that they already have to shift some of their crops that way. And, and in, in the states that it's already legal, right, and right. start to build those relationships and make sure the supply is going to be there, I think they end up winning. And, some of, and some there's, of the stories that I hear that I think are interesting, you're saying that Canada is undersupplied. Many of the states that have already legalized are saying that they have an oversupply. Way oversupply. Yeah, I was reading this story about in Washington how they were just – burning the stuff because it was going to go bad and it, it never got sold. Yeah. That might have been what you which smelled, is wild. Roger. Maybe. I don't know. It's a, <laughs> the but, bonfire. And I want Carlos to send an email explaining why he tied this to me. I'm probably the <laughs> only person born in the 1960s that did not partake. But yeah. uh, anyway. Right. Um, it's and, all about the economics. I'm okay, sure. good. I'm okay. Yeah. And, I and the other thing is I don't want to I don't want to brush over the the kind of like the it almost feels like a a, a mania that we're kind of we get questions all the time right sure so yeah I mean, no it's, it's a hot topic sure, and for sure. if you start to look at the fundamentals of some some of these companies I, I mean I've been asked about companies that don't even have sales right <laughs> I don't know how you value that companies and then that you make beakers you look at and like then the, change their name to look, something so cannabis now you can tell that he wasn't in this industry in 1999 you would have said <laughs> you would have said that's pre-revenue right yeah. <laughs> that's the way they pre-revenue that was yeah. the technology moniker so, so uh, I, I I mean I personally looking at the space have not come across anything that looks attractive the 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 only the only really compelling story is is uh, we've seen some firms in working on uh, medical level development of these cannab- cannabinoid compounds for right. treatment for for pain treatment to try and displace opiates. I think that could be a big market, and the, they're a little more reasonably valued in that space. Given right. But uh, I mean, you've got all you got all sorts of crazy valuations on some of these companies. I mean, I was looking at the top holding, it's like 10% of this big marijuana ETF, MJ, Canopy Growth. Right. It's at 100 times sales. 100 times sales. Yeah. What's a normal company's <laughs> multiple price to sales? Somewhere uh, between one and two? Uh, you said 100? <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah, bizarre. It's, and, and uh, you know, although it hasn't taken over the market like tech stocks did in the 90s, Roger, you made the, you made the uh, tie-in, but the reality is in that small space, it's that bad. Yeah. The, the valuations are just absolutely unbelievable and, and not something that I could support. Right. Um, but, yeah. again, I, I believe that tobacco, I mean, he says yeah. it in his question, I believe big tobacco, Jacob, you made the case, uh, that's really who's going to win this game. And that in the end. whole that whole space is really cheap right now because you've seen this push from the regulators to try and ban any sort of flavored cigarettes. Well, right. under that umbrella is going to be menthol cigarettes. So right. all these huge tobacco manufacturers 
are seeing sentiment in their stocks fall fall off because everyone's like, oh, okay, well, they got 30% of revenues under threat. They got very attractive dividend yields. And the, the news hasn't been big behind it, but they've been active in acquisitions in, in some of these small stakes. I mean, we've seen stakes taken in, in marijuana companies, sizable stakes, right. uh, to try and get a foot in the door to the, for these tobacco. So, again, I, I mean, if, if it's me, if I was going to play it, you ask me, how do you play cannabis? Buy some it's, of the cheap buy, tobacco stocks. Get paid a 5% dividend yeah. yield to wait 10 years for... Right. To tie <laughs> one thing into your point about uh, menthol, you'll look at the, the uh, contribution to sales, to revenue, and uh, it'll be significantly less as a percentage of what the stock has fallen uh, off oh, of, of the course. news, and, uh, and those you know, folks are going to smoke make... anyways, even if you do ban it. Yeah, and if the brand stays around, that's still going to be the one they're loyal yeah. to. All right, market up or down, Jacob? I'm not going to ask Doctor Todd really go. Oh. Oh, Thanks for listening to Money Talks. We'll be back next week. All material presented is compiled from sources believed to be reliable and current, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. The contents are intended for general information purposes only. Information provided should not be the sole basis in making any decisions and is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified professional, such as a tax consultant, insurance advisor, or attorney. Although this material is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information with respect to the subject matter, it may not apply in all situations. This is not to be construed as an offer to buy or sell any financial instruments. It is not our intention to state, indicate, or imply in any manner that current or past results are indicative of future profitability or expectations. Portfolio holdings discussed are subject to change. There is no guarantee that in the future these securities will be held in Hensler accounts. As with all investments, there are associated inherent risks. Please obtain and review all financial material carefully before investing. Hensler is not licensed to offer or sell insurance products. This overview is not to be construed as an offer to purchase any insurance products.